You ever get disappointed? It just happens, right? Sometimes, sometimes the things that we get disappointed with are the people that we love the most. Maybe it's our kids. We were hoping. We had dreams for them. And we're just disappointed. Maybe it's our marriage. We thought that the marriage would give us the happiness that we always dreamed about. And just not so. Maybe it's the career. The job that we thought was going to win us all the respect and acclaim and the finances that we would need. And it just falls flat. And it doesn't matter whether you're disappointed with not shutting off your mic in a bathroom or with something a little bit more serious like a failing marriage. Disappointment tends to go right to the heart of where we live. Because really, if we're going to, if, we, if our joy is found in any, anything, it's found in what we hope and what our hopes are. God knows that every one of us are going to go through disappointments in our lives. He knows that we're going to put our hopes in things that might be good, but they're not God. He knows that. And because he knows that, he gives us Easter. He gives us a moment to be reminded that our hopes are not to be found in the things that we think are for us, but rather in the one who rose from the dead for us. This is the, this is the gift of Easter. This is the truth of the Christian message. And so God knows that we are going to struggle like this in, in having our hopes dashed. He knows that. And so he gives us a story in the New Testament. I mean, honestly, I could have gone to a lot of different places in the Bible to be reminded that God is our hope, that his resurrection is our hope. But he gives us this section in the scriptures in the book of Luke where he starts to address some guys and what they were going through. Now, let me tell you this story. If we could just lower my mic a little bit, guys, thanks. All right. So let me tell you this story. Jesus has disappointed everyone. He has gone ahead and died on a cross. They have no... You think you have problems with God? They have no compartment in their mind for a suffering Savior. They have no place in their mind where they could receive the idea of a God who dies. They just don't, they can't imagine it. God has disappointed them. He has not given them what they want. Here in the text that we're going to read, we see two men on the road to Emmaus. And as they're traveling on the road, God interrupts their disappointment with himself. 
he interrupts their disappointment with themselves because he recognizes that unless they see him as he is, the real hope that they're looking for in life will never be found. I promise you that with you and with me, that when we come up against our hopes that are dashed, we're going to need Jesus to come alongside of us to refocus us on him as our hope. We see this in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. I want you to just sit there. We usually stand at the reading of God's word. This time I just want you to just let this word wash over you. I'll read it to you. If you didn't bring your Bible, we're so grateful that you're here. Um, we've got two ways of being able to follow along with what the scriptures are saying. In your bulletin, we've placed uh, a, ha- uh, a pullout and it has the scriptures on there. And if you're like me and over 40 and the font is too small, we'll have it uh, on the screen as well. So I'll read this section to you. And remember, we're talking about disappointment with God. We're talking about having our dashed hopes. We're not the only ones. Here's the scriptures. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them that they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place, in addition to some of our women, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all this, all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, 
stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? He talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is God's word. So we have some disciples here. Disciples that are dejected because God did not prove to be what they thought he was. Now, there's a couple of things that this text is pointing out that might not be super obvious to to us that I'd like to point out. One is that a common objection of Christianity is that it wasn't a scientific era. And so people would believe anything. Well, this text illuminates the fact that that simply wasn't true. These guys had just as difficult a time believing of a resurrected Christ as you and I would have. This was not a uh, a scientifically foolish society that believed whatever anyone told them. This was a group of people who, when confronted with the resurrection, immediately thought someone stole the body. There's got to be another reason. Nobody said, ha-ha, he resurrected. Nobody said that. You know why? Because even back then, they knew dead people generally don't go alive. They don't, they don't become alive. So the objection to Christianity that, well, the reason that they believed that sort of thing is because they were an unscientific, unenlightened group of people who would have believed anything. No, that is not true. In fact, God had to intervene and interrupt and show himself to be with them in order for them to believe that. Secondly, I want to point out that the disciples that these guys go and tell this to would eventually, and this is an important truth, they would eventually give their lives to tell this story that Christ rose from the dead. And you say, so what? The, there's a lot of people who have believed uh, in God wrongly and have given their lives. September 11th was filled with guys who believed a religious idea and gave their lives so that they could achieve that religious idea. So what if these guys, these, these believers, gave their lives? Well, here's the difference. The disciples did not give their lives over what they believed. That's what the guys at September 11th did. The disciples gave their lives over what they had seen. That's different. 
Well, how is that different? Well, it's easy. You either have seen it or you have not seen it. And so when push comes to shove and you're confronted and they say, hey, listen, stop saying this thing is true or we'll kill you. If you believe it, you can kind of muster yourself up. History is filled with people mustering themselves up to go, no, 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 I really believe. And I believe to the degree that I'm willing to give my life for it. But that's not what happened here. These guys gave their lives over what they had saw. They can, you can't muster your belief system if you didn't see it. If you're not a witness, you're not a witness. Amen. Believe me, even if you have seen it, even if you have seen it and someone threatens your life, you, you'd be pretty willing to uh, say, no, 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 I didn't see it. Reminds me, I was a young guy, right? And I was with my brother. I have an older brother whose name is the coolest name in the history of the world. I'm jealous of him for so many reasons. His name being just one of them. His name is Americo Colón. Is that, that's like the name of a captain of a ship. Americo Colón. Bad boy. It's like, woo! It's like, when they, it's like when they had my brother, they were like praying and meditating and the Americo Colón, you could hear the angels sing. And then by the time I come along, it's like, yeah, Eddie. Eddie will do. Edwin. It's no big deal. It's like, Edwin? It's like, Americo. Okay, so, so it, my brother and I, we were outside in the yard and we were playing. And my father, who told us not to go out front, who believed in corporal punishment, just, you know, take that for what it's worth. It was the era that we grew up in. And quite frankly, some of y'all could use a spanking anyway. And so, all right. But, all right, but that's not this sermon, okay? So, you, so we're out in the back. We're playing. We go back upstairs. And my father comes up and he says, I told you guys not to go outside. And we said the truth. We hadn't gone outside. We had just been in the back. We were playing in the yard. And my father came up to me. And remember, we're talking about uh, eyewitnesses and versus belief, right? My father came up and he started to pressure us. And then he did, you know, the, the thing that like every boy fears, at least every Puerto Rican boy that I knew fears, is when your dad, you know, the little sound of the buckle. You ever, you ever heard the sound of the buckle? Till this day, I hear people's buckle sound and I get startled. It's like, it's a deal. And so, not really. But, but the point is, is that he was, he took off his, and he took off his belt and right? Right? It's like Luke Skywalker with his uh, solo, right? And so he takes off his belt, and he looks at me, and he goes, tell me the truth, or you're both, you're both going to get hit. And I was like, dude, the truth was, we were, we were right outside. And then he comes real close, like only my dad could. And he comes real close to my face, and he, he has the belt next to him, and he says, Edwin, tell me the truth, and I won't hit you. I still regret to this day my response. <laughs> my brother got hit because I told a lie. Why do I tell you that story? Because, thank you for um, saying that. It's a rhetorical question. Work with me. Why do I tell you that story? Well, here's the reason why. Because when you're confronted with the kind of consequences that the disciples were confronted with, only people, not people with the belief system, only people who had seen with their eyes a dead man 
who got up. Only those people would be willing to lay down their lives because only those people would be sure. Now, if you had a belief system, then, well, we could believe whatever. Well, they were just very devoted. These people didn't die for what they believed. They died for what they witnessed. And that changes things. So we see Jesus interrupting this conversation that they're having. It says this in the scriptures. Now, the same day, the two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Here's what you need to understand. After the Sabbath on Sunday, Jesus has been in the tomb, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and they can't get away from the rest of the congregation fast enough. They're disappointed. They say as much in verse 17. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, we, we're not given the name of the other person, uh, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? See, this wasn't done in a little corner somewhere. This wasn't done as a uh, something that happened on the side that nobody heard about, and then 40 years later, some mythology rose up. This wasn't that. This was a very public thing. They were shocked that this guy didn't know. Now, I think it's super funny and super ironic because in the end, he was the only one who knew what had happened in Jerusalem that week. He was the only one who had the insights to know that he, was, he would give his life for the sake of the sins of many and then he would rise from the dead. He was the only one who knew that the forgiveness for our sins had been paid and that by his resurrection, we could have resurrection too. He was the only one who knew that the shame that those who did not know him had been paid so that they might know him and that their shame could be taken away. He was the only one who knew that the very hope of their hearts were truly fulfilled. He was the only one. Are you, not the, are you the only one who did not know? He was the only one who knew. And then their reply is, is it's a broken reply. In other words, they didn't fully have an understanding of who Jesus was. Look at verse uh, 19. What things, he asked. And by the way, here's a rule. When God asks a question, it's not because he's looking for information. When God asks a question, it's because he wants to bring clarity to those he's questioning. And so they go, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. You see, they had an incomplete understanding of who Jesus was. Maybe you're here and you think, you know what, Jesus... I like him. Good teacher. Smart guy. You have an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. You don't understand that Jesus has come to take your sin away, your shame removed, your guilt taken from you and, and put on himself. You don't understand that Jesus is God. And so if you want to know who God is, 
You just have to look at Jesus. And if you think that God is some absentee parent who allows his kids to go bad, then you haven't looked at the cross because the cross is proof that God enters the suffering of his children. Jesus is the one who would come from heaven to earth to live the life that we did not live and die the death that we deserve to die, the penalty of our death that we deserve to die, but don't have to because he paid the penalty for us. You see, beloved, you might be like them. You might be on the road, and that's why you're here. You're here because Jesus wants to reveal himself to you like he wanted to reveal himself to this group of guys. He wanted to show you, listen, your your view of me is incomplete. You have this idea that I'm distant and I'm far and that I'm not involved in your life and I'm coming because I want to enter into your hopelessness. I want to enter into your broken life. I want to enter into your dashed dreams. I want to enter into your broken marriage and bad bad relationship with your kids. I want to enter into the sickness that you're suffering and you think you're suffering alone. I want to enter into your depression and your loneliness. I want to enter into your success that's not nearly enough to bring you joy and happiness. I want to enter into your clean time. I want to enter into every area of your life. And I want to and I want to reveal myself to you for as long as you'll let me. Which is interesting because it brings us to where we're going to go next. They came and told that they had seen, oops, nope, uh, jumped down some more. Jesus then explains, actually, let me, let me do this first. In verse 25, he said to them, he's speaking to these guys, and he said, how foolish you are and slow to believe, pause. Is that you? That's me. I just, when, how slow I am to believe. I've been walking with Jesus for a couple of decades now, and I can promise you, I'm still so slow to believe. I'm still like, oh man. I'm still, I'm still not trusting in Christ for a lot of things. I still try to take up the responsibility that I think God should have. I still do it. How slow you are to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then here's our sentence. This is so good. Check this out. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, you have not read the Bible. You have not understood the Bible. You have not comprehended what you were reading when you read the scriptures if you did not see Jesus on every page. You see, Jesus is the point, not only of the scriptures, he's the point of life. Jesus is the hero. It's why when you and I go into a movie theater and we see someone sacrifice themselves, we get all teary-eyed because there's something inside of us that longs for a hero to come and rescue us. Jesus, listen, Jesus is a better Jack who in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, Titanic, in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, 
goes to Rose and sacrifices his life so that she might live. You see, Jesus is a better picture of that. Jesus is a, is a better prince who not only kisses the princess to give her life, but in fact gives his life for the princess so that she might have life. Jesus is better. You think David and Goliath is a story about a guy who, uh, who faced his fears and beat his Goliath, and if I could only face my fears, then I too would defeat my Goliath. Let me tell you something. That is not the meaning of David and Goliath. The meaning of David and Goliath is simply this, that there was one who was thought unworthy, who went down into the valley to fight death and sin, a greater giant than Goliath, and who did so not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life, and gains a victory for all the scared warriors who were standing in the background. Don't you see? Jesus, everything, all of life, and all of Scripture is about Jesus. Jesus goes back and tries to explain to, to, to them, Jesus, he's better, and he's all. Remember what I said earlier about Jesus will uh, stay for as long as you'll let him? I love this part in verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he were going farther. Pause. Right now, I suspect, and by the way, in a few minutes, this sermon will be over, mercifully, and you'll be on your way, and you'll go to whatever, you know, right? So like if you're new, someone said, hey, come on, come, come to church with me, and I'll take you to lunch afterwards. Or if it was your wife, she said, hey, man, you better come. It's Easter. It's going to be a cold night tonight. And you're like, all right, I might as well. And so, so you're here. Cool. I understand. People don't come to church for, you know, like we, we all have different reasons for coming. And, and, or maybe you're curious. And maybe you're just like, you know, maybe you're in that category of people that I was talking about before whose heart is broken and you're willing to even try Jesus, even though that's a year ago. If anybody would have said you'd been in a church, you'd have thought they were crazy. I get it. I get it. Me too. Me too. I get it. But we see that Jesus, even in the moment like this, Jesus could be walking alongside of you, just going. And right now, in your heart, he's going, it's true. It's true. Susie, it's true. John, it's true. Larry, it's true. It's true. And your heart is like, no, it's not true. No, I don't know. And you're having, you're not fighting with me. You're fighting with the Spirit of God who wants to grab a hold of your heart. The arguments that you're making in your mind is not against me. I don't have that kind of power. You're fighting against the Spirit of God who's, who's walking on this road with you right now. And he'll stay for as long as you like. Well, he was going to go further, and, and th this beautiful thing happens. But they urged him strongly, 
Stay with us. Stay with us. In a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to receive Jesus. And what I mean by that is simply to admit what you already know. That you are a sinner in need of a savior. You go, I don't know that. You're kidding me? I'm a pretty good person. In fact, you might be like me, where at one time in your life, you lived a really bad life. But now, you're a crossing little old ladies across the street, quiet in the public library kind of guy, right? And that might be you right now. You, you, listen, listen to me. Everybody, everybody has stuff in their lives that they believe they can't be forgiven for. Stuff that they wish they had never done. Stuff that they don't even bring to memory because if they brought it to memory, it makes them feel too ashamed. Jesus wants to enter into those areas of life. And the excuses that we give ourselves for those moments, well, I didn't know any better. Well, I was just young and stupid. Well, I was, whatever it is, is not enough to convince your heart that you're not guilty. And Jesus says, I want to address that sin and that guilt. And so when I'm asking you to come to Christ, I'm asking you to just finally be honest to God for the first time, maybe in your life. God, no excuses. This is who I am. I'm a sinner. They ask him, would you stay with us? And I'm praying that you would ask Jesus to come into your heart forgive you of your sin and transform your life. He'll do it. So they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Because nobody who asks Jesus to stay ever gets refused. Doesn't, and let me just say this. I don't care how bad you think you are. Your sin is no match for God's love. I don't care how. Listen to me. Listen to me. You, I tell you guys this all the time. Almost every week I tell you I'm the worst person in the room. I'm the worst person in the room. If God could forgive me, he could forgive anybody. If God could dwell in me, he could dwell in anyone. Now, do you also know, though, that for those of you who don't have, like, a long list, right? Because there's some of us here who are, like, just your average garden variety sinner, right? <laughs> yeah, just average garden variety. Nothing special about your sin. You're just average garden variety sinner. And then there are some of us here who are, like, overachievers when it comes to sin, right? And so mostly for this sermon, I've been speaking to the overachievers. But I, wanna, I don't want to speak to the garden variety. I, I want to speak to, the, to those who feel like their sin is not that bad. I just want to talk to you. Listen, Jesus can even save you from your own goodness. See, the very definition of self, nobody wants to be around a self-righteous person, right? 
and yet we're all self-righteous people. You know how I know? We all try to justify ourselves. We all try to find our righteousness in what we do. Here's how, here's how I can prove it. If, if I ever go, you know, you're a pretty evil person. If you want to defend that, here's what you say. And I've done this a million times. So here's what people generally say. They go, are you kidding me? I'm not bad. Look, I don't use anymore. Look, I don't, uh, I don't steal from, and then they say ridiculous things like, you know, I, don't, I pay my taxes. I don't kill nobody. As if that was like the measure of morality, right? It's like, oh my gosh. Um, I don't pay my, you know, so, so to that, I just, go, I just go, okay, listen, 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 listen. I get it, I get it. There's a sense where you think that it's okay because you're okay. And I'm telling you, beloved, listen to me. Listen to me. I'm telling you that our goodness is not good enough. If our goodness was good enough, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Doesn't it make sense that... The king of the universe does not send a helper. The king of the universe comes himself as a what? A savior. It's as a savior. You see, Jesus, listen to me. Jesus is not a dance instructor who tells you the moves that you need to have in order to be able to dance the dance of life. Jesus is a lifeguard who sees you drowning in your sin, the sin that you don't think is that bad, sees you drowning in that sin and comes, wraps his arm around you and gets you to safety, resuscitating your life if need be. Beloved, I'm telling you, he's come not as a helper, not as a life coach. He's come as a savior because here's the deal. We need saving. Now, for those, of the, for those of you who did not say amen, and the reason that you didn't is because you just don't believe what I said. And again, there's an argument going, I get it. I get it. I know what it's like to be in a church service, fight with the guy up front, and go, you know what? And just be offended by everything he says. And I might be offending you now. And if I am, I'm deeply sorry. I don't want to be offensive to you. I honestly just want to show you Jesus. And so if I could just push, push the idea of you being sinful, and I know that's super offensive, and forgive me for that, but if I can push that idea a little bit further with just two minutes, here's what I would present to you. We think that we're good people because we compare ourselves to not good people. Amen. So, when, so, when I, so if you ask me, can I play handball? Handball's my game. I, listen to me. I'm a pretty good handball player, right? Now, the reason I can now say I'm a pretty good handball player is because I'm comparing myself to you. <laughs> Take it the way you want. Right? I can beat you in handball. I'm not saying I can beat some of those cats in Coney Island in handball. I'm saying I can beat you. But that's how it is. If you ask me how good I am, I can, I can take pride in the fact that I'm a good handball player because I'm comparing myself to those who don't play handball or those who are not quite as good at handball as I am. Okay? Are you with me? We do that morally. We do that morally. When we say, hey, you think you're a good person? We go, sure I am. You know why? Because you're 
comparing yourself to me. You're going, I'm not as bad as Edwin. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not Hitler, right? You're comparing yourself to people who are worse than you. And here's all I'm saying that the scriptures are saying. The scriptures are saying that, our, that, that, the, that the value of perfection or the, or the gauge or the test or the, or the level that we have to hit is not in comparison to one another but rather in comparison to a holy, perfect, and pure God who's done nothing but love us and pursue us in that love. And so here, imagine you're, it's the day of your death, and you're seeing God face to face, and it's heaven. And he goes, why should I let you into my kingdom? Imagine this. This doesn't, like the Bible doesn't say this, but I'm just saying imagine it. What would... What would you say? Would you say, because I was a good person? Imagine if in that moment God said, oh, you're a good person? Okay, how's about this? Let's give you a little, a simple test, a simple test, okay? We'll use the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is easy because it's like the ethics 101, right? It's the bottom basement of morality. Don't kill nobody, right? Don't sleep with your neighbor's wife, right? This is not a high uh, uh, level of morality. This is pretty low, right? So, let's see. God goes, he brings out the Ten Commandments. He goes, all right, let's see. You're a good person. Okay, let, let me give you a test. Okay. Um, have, you ever, have you ever lied ever in your life? Ever in your life, right? Think about that for a second. I want you to take this personally. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to the person in your seat. I'm literally giving you a three-question test. It's participatory. Go ahead and take the test, okay? All right. So, have you ever lied in your life? Okay. All right, so now, those of you who said, no, I've never lied, gotcha, you just lied, <laughs> right? Because you've lied before, okay? If you can talk, you've lied, all right. Take it from a guy with five kids. If you can talk, you can lie, right? All right, so, okay. You've lied before. What does that make you? Now, watch this. Now, there, there's a home crowd here, so you've heard me do this before. But for those new guys, just, just think about this for a second. You go, usually the response I get is, human. That's what it makes me, human. To which I would go, yes, but can you be more specific about your humanness? Because yes, it makes you human, but it makes you a particular type of human. What type is that? Oh, I know. A liar. You go, that's not, that's not true. I, I, I don't normally lie. That's not, you're pushing it too far. To which I would say, let me ask you a question. How many people do you have to kill before you're considered a murderer? Anybody know? One. How many lies do you have to say before you're considered a liar? Anybody know? Okay, so you're a liar. Got it? Okay. Now, have you ever taken anything? Imagine this is a conversation you're having with God after you die. This is a fun conversation to have here when we're together, it's terrifying. Imagine, God comes up to you, second question, have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? And then some of you would go, no, I haven't done it. And, like, and then I would just say, ah, come on, you just said you were a liar. <laughs> Maybe you did. Pen from the office, right? Shirt from your sister. Oh, no, I just borrowed it for 15 years. I get it. I get it. 
right? Lies, right? So, yes, you have taken stuff that has belonged to you. Yes, you have taken stuff that, has belonged to, that hasn't belonged to you, right? Okay, anybody know what we call that person? Don't answer, just answer in your mind. Anybody know what we call that person? Yeah, it's a thief, right? Okay, right? Okay, so there's, we've taken things. We've lied. Okay, here's another one. Jesus says that if you even look lustfully at a person who's not your spouse, if you look lustfully, then you've committed adultery. Look lustfully. Okay. Can we talk? Okay. But now, again, we're laughing because of the environment. We're laughing because it's cool. We're laughing because it's the Puerto Rican guy asking the big crowd, and it's funny. Right? Now, but watch this. This is not funny if you're in front of God, because remember, you just told God that you deserve to be in heaven because you're a good person. And in the first three questions, God has discovered that you are a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. And if that's true, and if that's true, there's no hope for me. But what if God says, um, okay, but that was the test. It failed, bad, bad day for you, for sure. But what if God would say this? Hey, um, there's another plan. I could have someone take the test for you. One who's never lied. One who's never stolen. One who's never cheated. And his grade, not like these rich moms who subverted a system to destroy the lives of minorities and, and, and poor people so that they could get their kid into Harvard and Yale and do all that stuff. Not like that, but like a rich parent who, by him taking the test, allows everybody to come in to the kingdom. What if that was the plan? What if the plan in Christianity isn't you becoming a better version of you, but Jesus taking your place so that you could rest in his goodness? What if that was the plan? What if God knows that you're grimy and he loves you anyway? See, that's the Christian message. Jesus stuck around for a while to give that message. And then, okay, so we got to close. Here's the deal. Remember how I said in a few minutes, I'm going I'm to basically be asking you to receive Christ. In other words, to confess your sin and ask Jesus to come and um, forgive you of your sin and live in your heart. So basically, it looks like this. To be a Christian, there's, some, there's two truths that you have to receive and a third, right? There's two truths and a third. Why do I say it that way? Because it's not three things. It's like two truths that kind of produce a third, Right? And so here's the, here's, the three, here's the two and a third. The first one is that you have to, and it's as easy, it's a mnemonic device. It's as easy as ABC. Admit, admit that you're a sinner. And we just went through a little exercise about that, right? We just, okay, just admit that you're a sinner. Listen to me. I get it. You think that if you admit you're a sinner, then God won't want to have anything to do with you. I'm telling you, the opposite is true. When you admit that you're a sinner, God draws closer to you because finally you're being honest to God. Okay. Admit that you're a sinner. A. B. Believe that Jesus 
took your sin on him, took the penalty of your sin. The penalty that you deserved, Jesus took it on his life and paid for it on the cross. That means no double jeopardy. That means God will not accuse you of the same crime twice. Jesus has taken all of it, all of it. Even that thing you did Tuesday night, 3 o'clock in the morning that you can't forgive yourself or that your mom can't forgive you. Even that thing that you did Saturday night while you were a little drunk and you couldn't believe you went that far. Listen to me. Every one of our ugly, every one of our dirty, every one of our secrets, Jesus has forgiven or, or has taken the penalty on the cross. So A is admit that you're a sinner. B is believe, believe that Jesus is God and he took the place that you deserve so that you could have the place that he deserves. So those two, remember how I said it's two plus a third? It's those two produce a third one. And that's C, commit your body to him. In other words, your body is, no, is, is now under new management, right? Your body is no longer your own. Your body belongs to Jesus. And that means you're no longer a slave to your habits and desires and your longings. Now you become, listen to me, you become a slave to a better master, a master who would not only keep you as a slave but call you a son call you a daughter. That's what it means to come to Christ. Now, believe me, you're not too good for this. You're certainly not too bad for this. You can come to him. If you paid your taxes and was a good husband your whole life, you can come. If you were a great and faithful wife your whole life, you can, you can receive. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Now, in a few minutes, I'm going to ask um, those of you who want to receive Jesus for the first time, if you've already received him for the first time, I'm going to ask for those of you to receive Jesus for the first time by standing. In other words, you're going to make a declaration. You're going to make a declaration. But let me just tell you how these guys, were their eyes were opened real quick. The way their eyes were opened was that Jesus showed up just like Jesus is showing up right now in your hearts. You might be fighting it, but he's, he's here and he's showing up, right? Here's how. Jesus shows up and the Spirit opens their eyes over the pouring, over the understanding of the text. In other words, Jesus, it says in the scriptures, that it says in Luke, it says that Jesus opened up the scriptures and explained it to them. And that once he had explained it to them, that understanding, which by the way, was done within the context of being fellowshiped. There were two people walking together, not one person walking in doubt. You could do that for 30 years and never get any further, but two people struggling with their doubts. So there was two things that Jesus used. One was the scriptures and the other was their fellowship. This is what Jesus will use in your growth in Christ. He'll use the scriptures and he'll use fellowship. So let me give you one. Just before, I don't know if you caught it, there's a women's group and a men's group that are going to be meeting right here. And they're going to be going, what, you know what they're going to be doing? They're going to be opening up the scriptures. And they're going to be longing to see Jesus. And the Spirit is going to open their eyes. Ladies, it's the first Thursday of May, yes? I don't know what day that is, 
but it's just the first Thursday of the day. May, would you just, as a response to wanting to see the face of Jesus, would you not just put that on your calendar? Okay, that's number one. Number two, would you, would you just commit? Listen to me. You've been doing your way. It took me, it took me like two years. I came to church for like two years before I surrendered my heart to Christ. So if you're here and it's like, God, you know, just this one time, hey, get, slow down, slow down. Be easy. Don't, don't be so quick to run away. Even, listen, even if you've come from a 12-step background, they say, hey, 90 meetings in 90 days. They say this, hey, don't leave before the miracle happens. Right? This is wise. Because they know that if, you, if you're using and you come to a meeting the first time, like you may get it, you may not get it. But they say, what do they say? Keep coming back. They say keep coming back. So won't you, listen, don't make this your last service. Make it your first. Next Sunday, we're going to be gathering together with the believers. And we're going to study the scriptures. And God is going to open eyes. Who knows? Maybe even yours. Scary to think I know. 